Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have um, Anne Gislison discussing the futilitarians. My goodness, what two words I just totally said. Um, here, discussing with uh, Matt um, Sumel. And Matt Sumel is a hotshot local LA writer, um, an Irvine grad, author of Making Nice. Um, we had a big event for him for that book. Um, he's been published in Paris Review, One Story, Electric Literature, all over the place. Um, Anne Gislison um, is out with her first book, and um, boy, the book couldn't have come at a more timely moment uh, while we are like beset on all sides by natural disasters and man-made disasters, and um, we're having this like intense emotional cultural reckoning, and here we are with the books. I'm just like her. I think the books are what are going to save us. So it's really like um, an, an absolute pleasure to um, get to host an event here at the store for such a book. Um, my goodness, it has gotten so well reviewed. Uh, it has been called grand, complex, shattering, compassionate, important, beautiful, existential, boozy, brilliant, tragic, deeply affecting, brave, intellectual, wonderful, profoundly moving, personal, unexpected, universal, playful, occasionally triumphant, Intense, intimate, charming, captivating, and a great book. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, and thanks for Skylight for having me out here. Um, do I need this? Do I need this, really? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'll make it just right, please. Sit down and okay. make it just right. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for that uh, a nice introduction. <laughs> Slightly embarrassing introduction, all the, uh, the hyperbolic words, descriptors. Um, just, I'm just going to do a really quick overview of the book. And first of all, it's so great. It's just like almost everyone I know in LA, which not that many people, are like actually here, which is <laughs> wonderful. Um, one person in particular I need to recognize because I was totally mortified. I don't know if this happened to you when you had to, when it came time to do the acknowledgments for the book. Uh-huh. And you had to think about like everybody who influenced you or, or had a, a hand in the book in, in some way. And as I was writing, I was like, I know I'm going to mess up. I'm going to miss somebody. I'm going to miss somebody. I'm going to miss somebody important. And then as soon as I got my copy, I was like, ugh, it was Aunt Karen. Yes, I totally, I uh know, -huh. I totally should have um, put you in there because you were so fantastic in filling a lot of blanks for my dad. This is, my father is a very, uh, he's prominently part of this book. And um, I remember I emailed you some questions and you sent me this wonderful, um, Response, filling like all these like details of my dad as as a kid and growing up, and I remember thinking at the times like I have to remember to put Karen in that. So I'm sorry, but in the next edition, there's another edition. You'll you'll be in the. There will um, be. Yeah, <laughs> you'll be in the acknowledgement. So thanks so much, Aunt Karen. Um, so just a really quick overview of the uh, of the book. Um, it takes place over the year 2012, and uh, it was the beginning of January. We decided we decided to start an existential crisis reading group um, among uh, some friends. Strangely enough, one of the original members 
from the meeting, Nina, is, happens to be in LA. And it takes place in New Orleans, so it's kind of extra strange that you happen to be here. And she has a very um, important role in the book. You can come up a few times, but I mean, especially the mythology of the group and what happened. You'll have to buy the book and read it to find out exactly what happens. But anyway, so the next, we start this existential crisis reading group and literally like the next, um, the next day my dad, who wasn't part of the group, but he had been sick at the time. He had just had a week of chemo. He drives up to Angola State Prison to visit his uh, client on death row. He had no immunity, zero immunity, and um, he ends up getting very ill and dying the next week. And so it's this year's worth of readings of the groups, like the discussions of the, of the group and dealing with family issues and um, grief and my dad's death and death row plays a prominent role in it because I ended up going up there and, um, and visiting with the men up there. So, um, so that's just kind of the, the groundwork for the book. And so it's 12 chapters, each month is a different chapter, and um, I'm going to read a little bit of March, which kind of connects somewhat to your, to your intro, too. Um, and this is called The Belly of the Whale, March. On the morning commute to my younger son's school, we'd sometimes pass a bar, a 24-hour joint which would often have the door propped open to the daylight. The threshold framed a patron on a stool, usually an older guy, maybe smoking, who had either been there all night or was starting very early. Behind him, redly glowing light fixtures on the low ceiling, the jittery screens of video poker machines, that sweet dread touch of Christmas lights strung above the bottles. Unused cash registers with neat squares of rags covering the buttons, George Jones in the jukebox back by the pool table. Sometimes we'd get stuck in traffic in front of that bar and watch one of the patrons gazing outside. I'd wave and one of the guys would wave back. Once my son asked why I do that, wave, and I said, I'm just saying hi. Then I thought to myself, saluting the tragic plane on the way to kindergarten drop-off. Because of our March ECRG, that's the Existential Crisis Reading Group, reading, an excerpt from Arthur Kessler's 1964 opus, The Act of Creation, I had become attuned to life's tragic and trivial planes. In the act of creation, which explores the nature and purpose of creativity in life, novelist slash journalist slash anti-death penalty activist slash double suicide Kessler outlined what he believed are the two essential planes of existence, the trivial and the tragic. The trivial is where most of us spend a great deal of our lives, doing the work of survival and civilization, repetitive labor, commuting, running errands, and general life maintenance. In the trivial plane, we are held down by the grip of convention, and the possibility of self-transcendence diminishes. We experience the tragic plane when we fully connect to metaphysical forces like love, despair, and death. But if we spend too much time in the quote-unquote belly of the whale, which tends to disrupt all logical operations, we become lost. The Kessler reading was chosen by Tristan, born on a barge in an Amsterdam canal. That's one of the the ECRG members. Every month somebody would choose a different reading. Um, chosen by Tristan, born on a barge in an Amsterdam canal, a former bookseller and editor and now carpenter. Along with the National Guard, he'd been one of the first people to show up at dawn at a drawing marathon the nonprofit Brad, Susan, Case, and I helped start in a warehouse by the railroad tracks in the art-starved city after Katrina. A stranger to us, he stayed most of the 24 hours, even helped clean up the huge mess the following morning. He's been a steady partner in projects and a generous friend ever since. That evening, he described how about 10 years ago, he'd taken a six-month job in Antarctica, painting the walls of the McMurdo Station, an American research center. 
the average temperature was always below zero, and there were only a few hundred people there who were always cloaked in white suits against the white walls atop the white continent. He said the sensory and emotional isolation was intense, but that he learned to recognize fellow workers by their gestures and gait, an industrious band of ghosts whose moods he could sense by the way they held a paintbrush or traversed the camp. When he finally went on leave to Christchurch, New Zealand, he was so overwhelmed by the intensity of daily life, the colors, the sounds, the expressions on people's faces, that he felt like a newborn baby, experiencing everything for the first time, wandering the town near tears. Kessler posited that both the tragic and the trivial planes are necessary to live a fully engaged life, and that each plane can only be truly grasped through contact with the other. The seam or tightrope between them is where human creativity, whether personal, artistic, or scientific, exists. While the tragic plane feeds our minds and souls, the trivial plane provides the necessary social and intellectual stability needed to create and function. There's something to be said for putting a name to a condition, a certain comfort and common recognition. After reading the Kessler piece, I started evaluating my days in terms of the tragic and the trivial, how much time I spent on either plane. I could have chartered it out like an EKG reading. In the morning, on trivial lockdown, getting everyone fed, ready, and where they needed to go. Late morning, if I was writing, I checked in with the tragic. Early afternoon, at work teaching, the planes were interlocked. Afternoon, safely back on the trivial with pickup, homework, and dinner. Though often around 5 o'clock, it's like someone walks up and hangs an anvil around my neck, which maybe explains the universal cocktail hour. Then everyone shuffles sleepily towards nighttime oblivion. With enough luck and self-medication, no night terrors at 3 in the morning. But there are always places in life where these dichotomies fall apart. For me, it's caring for my children and husband. When affection breaks through the chores, times when making dinner and folding laundry also feel like love. At March's ECRG, we talked about how difficult it is to negotiate the planes. Like when you're, say, shopping at Target, but deep in some anxiety or despair, and you run into an acquaintance who asks how you're doing, and you can only smile and lie, white-knuckling the edge of the trivial plane. We talked about how some people we know seem to firmly inhabit one or the other, about people we'd lost outright to the tragic plane, dragging others down with them for a while. Um, I wondered if Rebecca and Rachel knew, and this is another kind of thread through the book, is that I had two younger sisters who had committed suicide years ago, and, um, and my father had forbidden me to write about them, and so with his passing and with the group, it kind of allowed me to start writing about them. So that's like kind of another important strain of the book. I wondered if Rebecca and Rachel knew on some subconscious level that their suicides awarded the rest of us siblings lifetime memberships to the tragic plane. Wondered if spite figured it all into the blackness of those last moments of preparation and descent. Most likely not, but they always seemed so united in their aggrievement. We thought they were spoiled, our, our tired parents too lax with discipline, with curfews, with money, after already raising six children. The twins thought that as the youngest, they were getting the scraps of a big, noisy, energetic family. Kessler wrote that whole communities can be relocated to the gusty, tragic plane, which is what's happening right now in Texas and uh, Florida, um, through catastrophes like war and natural disaster. We agreed and talked about how after Katrina, it was extraordinary to live in a city where people were so blasted open and vulnerable, charged with frustration and purpose. For the first year, it was a town without small talk, everyone eager to connect with each other sit and share their sad, crazy tales. So much work and worry. People seemed exhausted all the time. In addition to all the authentic human interaction, hope, and generosity, this tragic plane was also distinguished by the exodus of friends, the premature loss of many of our elderly, 
vultures of all stripes, suicide and divorce. But, Kessler continues, these communities soon succeed in banalizing even tragedy itself and carry on business as usual among the ruins or shambles. Um, also true, just two months after 80% of the city had flooded and was still mostly empty, my older sister Kristen insisted on celebrating her husband's birthday with a big dinner at a nice French Quarter restaurant, one of the few that had reopened by October. Restaurants Five Star to One had limited menus and were serving everything on paper, plastic, or styrofoam because the water system was still wrecked and everyone was understaffed. Kristen couldn't abide that, despised drinking wine out of plastic, so she brought her own case of wine glasses to the restaurant for us to drink from and then took them home to wash them herself. That night, Brad and I were sitting next to a man I'd known for years who had lost his father, house, and job during Katrina. He had a look that had become familiar during that time, a loose, tired quality acquired from your life being mangled and imperfectly reassembled. Wife and ch children suddenly shoehorned into a small apartment in a part of town you'd never liked but that hadn't flooded, and working a job you'd never wanted but that paid. In the tawny glow of the grand dining room of the Bourbon House, our plastic cutlery might have squeaked against the styrofoam plates just like it did against the containers we lined up for at the Red Cross trucks when we first came back to the destroyed city. But we were toasting my brother-in-law and the strength of our troubled region with my sister's wine glasses clutching the delicate stems. That's great, thank you. Uh, so, I was really, um, kind of reluctant to take this on because I'm selfish and because I was just in Burning Man dealing with my own <laughs> existential crisis by doing masses, massive amounts of drugs, um, <laughs> crying about exes, as you know. Uh, but I just want to start off by saying, by thanking you um, for inviting me to do this. Uh, even though I was reluctant, um, when I finally sat down to read it, um, as I've done with other friends and other books and stuff like that. I, you know, sometimes you read a friend's book and you're like, oh, you know, yeah, you find stuff. You, like, have to look for stuff to compliment and you, you know, you're sort of digging and you find the things to praise. And you're like, yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's really good stuff. But this is a book that um, I ran out of bookmarks <laughs> to, you know, with passages that I was um, marking and I started using um, my Uno deck. Uh, I, I just lost the page I was going to use, but um, it's so fucking good. It's um, really tremendous work, and it's hard work, and and it's hard for a number of reasons. One, I think it's it's difficult. Writing is always difficult, but I think it's 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 difficult. Um, one because it seems so. It's obviously so deeply felt. You know, it's a memoir. Um, you're dealing with really difficult material. Um, really painful material. I wrote a book of fiction, but it was based on you know some some my mother passing away and sort of spiraling out, and it was you know it hurt to write it. Um, and I wondered if if writing it, do you feel that like writing it, um, do you have to descend down into that tragic plane, like mm -hmm. like Kessler, is that how you say his name? Mm -hmm. Uh, was describing like because I felt like writing writing my book, which took me ten years. It was uh, you know, it kind of left me in shambles. Like I was fucked up and I'm depressed. You like sort of sort of spent hours thinking about some of the worst things that have ever happened, mm -hmm. and what effect that might have had on you when you were putting this together. Mm -hmm. Well, I think because of the way my my days are structured, kind of like in that passage that 
I don't have a lot of time to uh, to descend down there. And when I do, it did it would totally like mess me up if I spent say eight hours working on the book uh-huh. at a time. Uh-huh. Then that would be um, it would be hard to kind of pull out of that out of the tragic plane and, and pull away from that. Um, but a bulk of the book was written kind of a few hours in the morning because you know I've got a family and you know I've got kids and I've got a job that I've got to be to at noon. And so I would like go and like like just like do a quick deep dive into the depths and. Um, but then it was, you know, the trivial plane would just have to pull me out of it because I had, um, you know, I had other other things that I had to take care of. You know what I mean? Right. And so, so luckily I had that trivial plane, so I didn't get lost in like the, the belly of the whale. But there were certainly some times, like for long stretches, where uh-huh. I did. I was just talking to you upstairs um, about Jess Walter. Uh, he was giving me advice once, and he was like, "So Matt, I was telling you about some struggles I had writing," and he was like. Uh, so let me ask you, do you, you know, you're working, you're just writing. I was like, I'm just writing. And he said, you have an apartment, it's just the way you like it. You have everything. You got a nice couch. Like, yeah. You get a nice, yeah. Your girlfriend's there. You got beer in the fridge. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Uh, I got fucking kids, man. I got a wife. <laughs> He's like, I wake up. I, I, you know, we do breakfast and then I, I retreat and I stay up away from them as much as I can and do the work. And then, but he comes back to... The trivial plane, yeah. you know what I mean, and I'm not sure how much of that I actually had, but it's it's, it's really kind of fascinating to me to try to find that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we get into this too later in the book. I'd have to find the passage, but what about um, the role of drinking <laughs> in that? Um, it was Amos, right? The, yeah, oh, the know, Kingsley Amos. Kingsley Amos section. Yeah, the metaphysical hangover right. chapter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know what month that is? That was August. Okay. Yeah. Let's find August. Um, yeah, the metaphysical hangover. Thanks to my my cousins, who took me out last night. I only have, not only have a metaphysical hangover, but like an actual, as he calls, <laughs> yeah, yeah, physical hangover. Well, um, do you feel like, first of all, I th- possibly alcohol helps you? get to that plane, the tragic plane, right, to access it, um, or at least it does for me, and I think it sort of leaves you raw, and then you can sort of... Well, that's why you recently quit drinking, right? Well, it's for... because Trump won, and my yeah. girlfriend left, but yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like it says on the, the beginning of the metaphysical hangover chapter, it says, drinking for better or for worse was an integral aspect of the ECRG project. It marked our place in the several thousand year long continuum of people sitting around together, sipping and gazing upon the navel of humanity. It's always interested me that for millennia, humanity has contrived with nature to supply itself with never ending and varied ways to take the edge off of the condition and to alter individual consciousness, to both connect more easily to others and hopelessly isolate ourselves. Um, and that's, I mean, that's kind of part of it. With the the drinking, there's always that that edge. If you can, I mean, if you can find that balance where it's helping you connect more easily to others um, and kind of like loosen the the boundaries of the self, um, and that's great. But it can also hopelessly isolate ourselves. Um, but then Amos, oh no, good. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, it certainly left me, like sometimes it feels like it helps, and then other times you, it leaves you completely disoriented mm-hmm. um, and sort of unable, to, you're grasping it like, yeah, fuck, I don't know, like to, to bring you back to um, that line that you need, right? There, mm-hmm. was a, there was a passage about um, 
that the creativity happens on that line, right? Like you, yeah, yeah. The, the seam between the trivial and the tragic planes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I found that kind of fascinating where you just have to be right on that seam so you can sort of look at both and then and call from both. Yeah, and they have yeah. to come in contact with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have that balance. I Kate, feel like most of the time I do have that that balance. But also uh -huh. this was like a communal project. Right. Like if I was getting together with myself once a month and drinking all night and thinking about these issues, that would be a different thing altogether. But I was getting together with, you know, with 12 people or whatever, and we were all um, connecting to each other. And um, and so I think, it, I mean, drinking actually became the sort of ritualistic part of the of the evening, you know, because everyone would show up with a bottle. We'd kill the bottles, we'd line them up in the uh -huh. same place along the wall. And so it became almost a sacramental thing. Like in a lot of interviews I've done about the book, people ask if it's, uh, um, if it's sort of this kind of secular way of um, of like taking the place of going to church or mass or something like that, and just uh -huh. like the ritualistic aspect of it. Right. And so I think drinking probably falls more in the uh, in that, but the, the communal ritualistic part. Okay. Um, I certainly found uh, I identified with some of the passage on um, one fifty three, um, especially I guess how grief can. Um, uh, sort of bring you or, or bring you into or force you into that tragic plane. Mm -hmm. In those in initial years, some of us siblings retreated more fully into careers, others into family life, extra scrutiny given to the next generation of children for any trace of the twins. Amy, the youngest, once more after growing up a middle child who was home with the twins during the worst years, felt the most immediate responsibility for them and took them off for an extended sojourn in the grand consolation of the isolation of the Grand Canyon. Unmarried, insecure, and chronically confused, I became paralyzed in my personal life, unable to make good decisions to move things forward. I floundered creatively. I was like, yeah, I got that. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's good to see that you can pull out. I mm -hmm. like that. Um, oh, gosh, I'm just dropping everything all over here. It's all right. It's all the UNO cards. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, all right. Well, I... I also wanted to start off by apologizing too, because I feel like, um, you know, it's such a, this is such a, a it's such a deeply, it's a powerful book, it's a meaningful book, and and um, I feel like, uh, you know, not only am I not a draw for a bigger crowd, but I'm actually a repellent. <laughs> like, you should have standing room only in there. I feel for this. It's really, it's tremendous work. Um, uh, you know, so many books are just, they're just okay. They just, they're, it's writing to sound like writing. Um, and I also love your attention to, to um, language itself. And I think you put it really well. You, you described it as the, the one-two punch of music and meaning. Mm. Um, the poetic import. Sort of how you your your sentences, um, the rhythm, the the rhythm and the rhythms and the artfulness of the sentences. Um, uh, you care about that as much as you care about the information they convey. Um, and this is just sort of a craft question, but like, you know, that attention to, to that music, um, where do you think you first maybe started to figure that out or learn that? Because that was something that took me a while. Well, I think, I mean, actually that passage that you were quoting was when um, I read, first read Joyce 
James Joyce, um, that story, Araby, when I was uh-huh. in high school. Uh-huh. And like those were the things that I knew how to respond to. But, um, but actually, I think it, it kind of, a lot of this goes back that I was a, when I first started writing, I was a poet. And so I was, or I, don't, I wasn't a poet. I wrote poetry. And, and I was You're kind of, yeah. uh, and I was a kind of, I mean, I published some, I published some poetry, but I probably shouldn't call myself a poet. And so I wrote a lot of poetry, but then I realized, oh, it wasn't, that wasn't my thing. I wasn't really good at that. And so I was kind of a failed poet. And then, but poetry, of course, teaches you, you know, concision and um, mm-hmm. to focus on images and the visuals and the, and the sound, right? So those are the, the big lessons that you learn from, from writing poetry. And, um, and then I started writing short fiction and, um, and that kind of, like, once again, you still have to think about concision and the way that the lines move things forward. Um, but then I realized I wasn't a fiction writer either, a short fiction writer, a failed short fiction writer. And then I wrote a couple of novels, and then I realized I wasn't a, um, I wasn't a novelist either. And when I started writing nonfiction, one of the things I loved about it is like, oh, I'm a failed poet and a failed fiction writer, but... Like with nonfiction, you can use all those things. You can like use the music from, from poetry and the imagery and all of that. And you know you can have characters like in fiction. And so, like I was so relieved. I mean, it took me a long time to figure this out. It took like 20 years or something, to figure out, like you know what I mean, that I uh-huh. wanted to write nonfiction. But that was part of like going through the, having to fail at all those different things is what, kind of brought me to this. But do you feel like I don't know? I, for me, I feel like part of the. Part of the secret is just having like a stubbornness that borders on diagnosable, where you just don't stop. Like you just mm-hmm. you stopped writing poetry. Yeah. If you didn't, you'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long did this take? This was. Um, I started writing it about um, midway through 2012, mm-hmm. and I asked the group. I think you were out of it by then. I know. <laughs> um, if they were okay, I was like, oh, I think there's enough material. Because after that first meeting, that first like super intense meeting, and then like dad dying the next week and all of that, I was like, oh my God. And all the things, we had read like Epicurus and Ecclesiastes. And um, I was like, God, this is such an essay. And so I just wrote this essay about that first meeting. And then like we had the next meeting and the next one, I was like, oh, this is, this is something, this is like, a, this is a book. And so about halfway through, I asked the members in the group, I said, you all cool if I just start writing about this? And they're like, yeah, no problem. And everyone was really nice about it. Um, so, so I started writing in the middle of 2012, worked on it for maybe a year and a half, and I, uh, Little Brown picked it up in 2015, and then spent like another year working on it. Okay. Yeah. I have to do math. That's like uh, <laughs> That's right. five, uh, five years. Yeah, well, Something like that. it was like three years. But I was writing other stuff, too. I was writing like magazine pieces and stuff like that. That's other things. Yeah, that seems, so. yeah. My book was like 10 years, more, mm-hmm. 12, because I'm just, one story took me seven years. It's sort of like I just don't stop. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, that, that, that sensibility really sort of came through in your sentences, that art mm-hmm. and that beauty. And I, it makes sense what you said, because even my mentor, Michelle Atiole, um, who had a, she has an MFA. She gets a lot of um, praise for that, for being so into the language. Um, uh, you know, it's mouth sounds and sort of just the music of it, and it's like, well, yeah, she has a, she got her MFA both in mm-hmm. in fiction and in poetry, so that's that's really kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think. Well, the first meeting ended with a, a breakup, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and and then followed immediately by. Um, your father passing away. Mm-hmm. Uh, your father was uh, obviously such a huge role 
you know, like cast such a huge shadow and, and was a tremendously important person to you. And then did you have any, I mean, did that, did that make this project even more important for you? Or did you, were you like, this is a bad sign, like things are fucked up? I think those were, those were the reasons why I wrote it. There was that sense of, uh, of urgency mm -hmm. and wanting to deal with that. And I think whenever you lose a parent, like that's when all these, uh, these big issues of, you know, mortality and self and existence in your past and trying to figure all this stuff up, that's when these things kind of come up. So, um, so for me, it felt like, like those were the things that made it necessary to write it. Right. Even though it was, it was hard. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I sort of related to that too. The idea of you use what hurts you, you know, you take the good luck of bad luck and mm -hmm. try to make something of it. But then, you know, there's, it's also a tremendously funny book, and I love that the 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 make them laugh, break the heart kind of thing that happens here, and just like how smart it is. Like from 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 that breakup and from that um, loss, you you move right into grieving during carnival season was an odd enterprise. It's February in New Orleans, carnival season starts. Um, somewhat like grief, carnival's chief tension is between ritual and chaos. And also, like grief, it involves breaking out of daily rhythms and getting in touch with something more communal. Um, the season of, of Carnival or Farewell of the Flesh lasts for weeks, from the Feast of the Epiphany to Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. The same parades have been parading in the same nights of the week in the same sequence for years. People have appointed days for throwing and attending certain parties. Um, the same families escape town for the week of Mardi Gras. After all, not everyone enjoys the massive crowds the traffic, the excess, which you said you don't. Um, most schools, both Catholic and secular, closed for the week, or at least part of it. Regular business is suspended, unless your regular business is in the service industry or law enforcement. I mean, I think it's such a, one, it's such a really smart metaphor or, or a comparison to draw. Um, um, where was I going with this sort of line of questioning? Let me think here. Uh, um, but then, so then in February, you slide into sort of the absurdity of yeah. some of this and the absurdity of death um, and sort of had this like I read it and I had this sense of permission like you, you, there's one line frivolity is the refusal of the human species to suffer mm. um, and I, it, it felt like like I was happy to read that because oftentimes I guess I've been called an ass <laughs> who knows he's an ass and who tries not to be an ass but is still triumphantly an ass. Like I'm like, yeah, I want to look at everybody and be like, you're welcome for being an ass. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm just refusing to be, you know, suffering. Um, uh, but all this is, is so smart. And then, and then um, you you go into this stuff about I mean what what I found really fascinating in this February month is mm -hmm. the Lego stuff. Oh yeah. Um, at one point your your son is it Otto? Mm -hmm. um, because of your father's passing away, gives you a, a cross, mm -hmm. a green cross, uh, crucifix made out of Legos. Yeah. But then you also I'm not sure when it happened exactly in the timeline, but there was a Nazi Lego guy. Yeah, yeah, the whole, I think, like part of it, you're right, that, that is a very absurd chapter. And I think like when you're, um, you know, dad just died and everything, and I think you become like really, really attuned to absurdity, like absurdity in life and absurdity in death. And um, yeah, and I mean, the, the Lego part of that is that, uh, yeah, he had given me this little Lego cross, but of course, it, you know, like everything, it just kind of 
um, ended up in the chaos and the confusion of everything. But that whole like Lego thing is that he was asking for um, a Nazi Lego minifigure. He was five at the time, and he didn't even know what what Nazis really were. It was just like another little kind of action figure. Uh -huh. And so hearing him like say the word Nazi, I was just like, whoa, what? And I was like, they don't really have those. He's like, yeah, they totally have them. Like you can get them online. And um, and we happened to be reading a story called This Way um, to the to the Gas Ladies and Gentlemen, um, which is about the horrors of the Holocaust it's by this amazing Polish writer, Tadeusz Borowski. Um, and so we were reading about these. Horrors of the Holocaust. I've got my little kid asking for Nazi Lego minifigures, and um, so yeah. So just the absurdity in that. But then, like, I was, he was looking like you know when you go on YouTube and you put in like Lego things, and you get like there's like millions and millions of videos of all these little like scenarios, like the Nuremberg trials, and you know like all done in Legos. Or, which is nuts. Which is nuts. But there's all this, yeah. There's like, you know, like the uh, the Fukushima Daiichi uh, mel nuclear meltdown. They have that in Legos, like the twin towers with the plane flying in. Like yeah, people the just tidal wave, right? the tidal wave. Like, but that's like a way that some people kind of process these things, adults, by making Lego things of them. But I would, I, he was looking at these things, and I heard this song, this terrible song about um, how. Um, we and it was like this techno song. It's like we like these girls with with functioning vaginas. And I'm like, what? And he was tiny, and I just like, I get the mouse. I'm like, what is this? And these some dudes had made this uh, a strip club out of Legos, and had a little a little Lego stripper on a stripper pole. Oh my god! And um, with one leg. And one of the lines was, we don't care if they've only got one leg as long as they've got a you know functioning vagina. And I'm just like, this is. So like fucked up. Like this is so uh -huh. messed up. But like that's and it was kind of the absurdity of the of the world we live in, especially like raising kids. Like with the internet, I think I use the image is iridescent. It can like shiny, go shiny and dark with like one click. That's it. Suddenly he's watching this like insane video because he was just like you know Legos. looking up Legos. Yeah. And so the absurdity in that chapter is just. And then there's all the weird biographical stuff with Borowski, who maybe had this affair with a young girl and everything. And so this like meshing of the adult world and the kid world and um, uh -huh. and yeah oh then also like one of my sisters had been a dancer as well and so that figured into like my uh, my sort of visceral reaction to the dancer the little like blonde Lego dancer figure mm -hmm. and so I think there's that part like I'm like how do we get to this place where like my kid um, like Legos like his favorite toy, misogyny, like my sister's suicide, like everything mashes together in this one absurd moment. Right. Which seems very contemporary. Mm -hmm. About your or um, your sister, uh, one of the things that I found sort of really touching, you know, and sort of also the solace that you got from strangely, like at the end of that chapter, February, was, was the door of your house, the crack of light over the door. Oh, the transom, yeah. The transom. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so it's through the transom, I see. So it's yeah, like yeah. that big thing. Yeah, but you just so you, so you got your solace from that. But I became sort of fixated on some of the objects that you assign significance to, meaning mm -hmm. to. And one of them was your sister's, when you went to clean up the house or something, oh. the eye makeup. Uh-huh. Um, you know, because it's this... It's a thing you don't use it, right? Um, but there's this uh, significance that gets, you can't get rid of it either, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's something I've been thinking about because I got involved once with this thing called significant objects. Had you heard of it? Oh, yeah, 
I wrote a piece for you that. You did? Yeah, yeah, so did I. I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the Rob Walker and, um, yeah. Right, uh-huh. right, where, where you take it, uh, the idea is that you take a, um, an object that's not worth more than five or ten dollars and you as a uh, uh, well what initially happened was they were doing that and they were saying like we got these stories from people of objects that weren't worth financially any money but that were worth everything to them and it was these objects that had you know meaning like 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 this eyeglass case mm-hmm. or this this eye makeup case or whatever um, and and then they decided that they could task fiction writers with writing a little story to give it that meaning and that's what we were doing right yeah no you know what it was I'm thinking about a different object thing. I'm doing, thinking of project object, which is a different one. Oh, it was a different Robert. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was I, I kept noticing moments in um, uh, in the book where there were different objects that were assigned this kind of value. I'm sort of flipping through now. I'm sure it was on one of those Uno pages. <laughs> but um, oh, it was the pralines. Oh yeah. I found that kind of oh, so touching. Um, so obviously you're. Your father and your brother worked with prisoners in Angola prison who were on death row. Which strangely, my sister Jackie, who also lives in New Orleans in the Seventh Ward, uh, does as well um, in a different capacity through her artwork. um, Which is the strange, another strange connection we have. In fact, Mm -hmm. I make an appearance in this book on page 100, which I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that. I get to that. I have a bone to pick. But. But at one point, you're talking about you get this letter from, on page 193, I'm jumping ahead, letter from a death row inmate um, after your father passes away. And we go into this whole passage about pralines. Um, I think it's on page 114, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have that? Do you mind reading that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're having lunch at death row because that's what you do when you go to death row. They give you the first thing when you walk in. You've got to go through all this stuff to, to get there. It's this whole kind of ordeal because Angola is huge. It's about um, about 5,000 men. I can't remember. It's like 13,000 acres. It's, it's the biggest maximum security prison in the country. And it's still got a, a camp system where it's like Camp C, Camp B, Camp, and all these different camps. And they work the fields. And that's why it's, it's also called the farm. And it was used to be a plantation called Angola that was for like slave breeding. It's a really mm-hmm. intense, intense place because there's so much history built up in that one spot. And um, so I'm just talking, we're just eating lunch because you walk in, I want you to go through all the things you have to do to get into death row. And um, they just, they hand you a menu. And um, and you have to choose, you know, like what you want from the menu. And there's inmates who make, it. and the food's actually really good. It's really, really fresh. And um, and so, so we were talking. I was talking with a, was my brother's client that I was talking to, and uh, um, he was just talking about what they what they eat. And he said during their single daily hour out of their cells. Some guys had figured out how to do a little improvisational cooking in the microwave they had access to. He walked me through a fellow inmate's recipe for death row pralines. A half full jar of peanut butter, water, a a microwave, a plastic spoon, and whatever preferred candy is available from the vending machine. I understood that inmates desired to attempt to recreate a praline. Just seeing them in their little baskets next to the register at the drugstore, hardware store, traffic court, a side enterprise for the cashier. Like literally, there's a cashier at the traffic court who just sells pralines along with taking your money for your tickets. Um, evokes a convulsion of desire. The simplicity of the ingredients, sugar, butter, and pecans, yielding something almost too good to bear. 
I used to work across the street from Aunt Sally's Praline Factory near the river, and where their vats, when their vats were bubbling and the coffee plant a few blocks away was roasting, the neighborhood smelled like the world's largest continental breakfast, and I couldn't believe my good fortune to spend my days in such a place. But such concentrated delight has a particular relationship to heartbreak. Shortly after Katrina, I befriended a Creole grandfather during drop-off at her kid's school. Many mornings, he would talk to me about his praline business that it was just getting going before the storm. In a repetitive, abstracted loop, many older folks were stuck in during that time, struggling to move forward, the gears always slipping. He had just made some big deals with a few downtown hotels when his kitchen flooded and everything fell apart. One day, he brought me a small, wilted, flattened box, cheerily printed with his company's logo, never to be assembled and never to be filled with what he claimed were the best pralines in the city. Did he present the box to me as evidence, as emblem? I wasn't sure. Later, I noticed a drift of hundreds more empty packages in the back of his car next to his grandbaby's car seat. And then there's another probably encounter that happens. But Yeah, it's just, I mean, this book sort of, the way that this book moves, I find fascinating. Like, you can cover, you're covering so much ground because it's all tied together through memory and through experience, and one thing's calling up another thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, which calls up your father and his work. Um, doing that and I, I was really touched by um, sort of sort of how you found out why he did that work mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not sure we want to discuss that you might want to leave that for for them to figure for the book for the book for the book, <laughs> for the book. but um, I had sort of had the similar things with my sister and her work and sort of how she's working with, with people who she has on the surface nothing in common with um, but comes to, to grow to care about these people deeply. Um, and I, as a writer, always sort of struggled with this um, with this a little bit. And I think I'm, I mentioned it to you over at the other bar. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here. My, my sister's doing this work where she's, she's helping a guy who's been locked in a six-by-nine-foot cell for 35 years with an hour uh, a week outside. Um, in this, he, in this case, he was convicted of a crime he hadn't even committed, and even the widow was saying that much. I mean, it's just it's horrendous. Um, and, and it's tremendously important work with real-world tangible effects. I mean, he actually got out of prison, but he, was, he had terminal cancer. He died um, 36 hours after getting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Herman Wallace, one of the Angola Three. Uh, and you go, like, God... What amazing work. I'm writing a story about the time I fingered that girl in high school. In that book. You know what I mean? Like, and I go, is this fucking matter? You know what I mean? What am I doing here? I mean, and do you ever struggle with anything? No, you don't. <laughs> no, 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 I do. I do because I always have this I always have this sense that it's not enough, that like writing is not enough. I think that's why I continue to, to teach. Because I feel like it's like, oh, at least then I'm making this this tangible difference um, in other people's lives. But I always have this like suspicion that writing's not quite enough in terms of like what I'm giving to the world. But I mean, then again, like, but you know, your sister. There's something in your sister that draws her to that sort of work, just like there's something in my brother and my father that drew them to that kind of work. And I think we just have to kind of like follow what we're we're good at. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And there's that, that passage um, about uh, sort of you end up in streams, um, pulled in streams, oh, and there yeah. are the... <laughs> is that something that you wanted to read? Oh, the, the stillborn, that's such a funny... I mean, it's a 
kind of horrifying passage, but it it's is kind of horrifying, but it's kind of amazing. Um, God, where is that? Oh yeah, that uh, Louis Pasteur, the biographer. This goes back to the Kessler, the act of creation, um, and because uh, I had this weird, this weird thing when I was looking at my dad's obituary, and um, and right next to his obituary there was this other story about this guy, and he, he, my dad he was had some kind of like social prominence or uh, civic prominence, and so they'd done one of those obituaries. It's actually like an article. But right next to it was another article, right next to it, like same length, about this body that had been found at the bottom of an elevator shaft in this Katrina-damaged hotel out in New Orleans East. And there were these weird, I was looking at both of them right next to each other, and I was like, God, there's, there were these kind of like weird parallels. Um, and and so it was interesting that like both of them, like dad was had a very um, like I had a public life, and he was died. He died surrounded. He was a patriarch, died surrounded by his family, and here was this guy who died at the bottom alone for like probably trapped for days at the bottom of an elevator shaft in this ruined hotel. And I was like, God, like in some ways, like you never know what direction your life is gonna is gonna be. And I thought about that the Kessler quote um, uh, from the very very end of the, the um, it's like at the very end of this like 700 page brick I didn't read the whole thing I just flipped to the I flipped to the last page because I um, was wondering how Kessler is going to finish this monster and in that section he discovered he discusses the fluidity of genius specifically regarding scientists and the role that accident and happenstance played in their path towards major history diverting discoveries apparently Pasteur's notebooks were full full of projects and nascent discoveries that neither time nor circumstance allowed him to pursue but had events or relationships or whims been differently aligned for Pasteur, suggests his biographer, there might have been a totally different outcome for humanity. And this is, this is the quote that got me. And this is the quote from the Pasteur biography. Um, it is often by trivial, even accidental decision that we direct our activities into a certain channel. Usually we know nothing of the ultimate orientation or of the outlet towards which we travel. And the stream sweeps, sweeps us into a formula of life from which there is no returning. Every decision is like a murder and our march forward is over the stillborn bodies of all of our possible selves that will never be. And just, I know, I know. It's so outrageous, like every decision is like a murder. March forward over the stillborn bodies of all of our possible selves will never be. And so I kind of saw that guy at the, because I mean, cause dad had a lot of weaknesses too. I was like, he could, you know, like who knows? Like you could be the, right. that could be a possible self that you have to step over. Well, I feel like that about all my decisions. In fact, my I, after after my book came out and I was sort of spiraling out, and I was, people were like, "What are you working on now?" And I was like, oh, "My mental health." And uh, I went to my therapist and was like, "I don't know. I'm fucking indecisive. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't really have the ability to like sort of send myself off in like certain directions and uh, willfully." And he, what did he say to me? He was just like, "Well, every decision is. I mean, your 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 every decision is a loss." You you have to you're, you're putting one thing to bed. You're not going to do that thing, and so you you have to sort of you're never going to win when you make a decision. Right. And I was like, oh fuck. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> depressing. But calling it like a murder, like every decision is a murder. And we <laughs> have your, to step over the bodies self. of our stillborn selves. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Um. So uh, we might as well jump to this thing where you. I don't know if this is a slight. In. Oh. May the dark wood. <laughs> This is when we first met, uh, and I was—I had just lucked into a story in the Paris Review, um, and my sister had like set up this elaborate 
plan. She she was like, Matt, they want to fly you out to New Orleans to do this reading. Um, they're gonna pay for it. Uh, and I was like, ah, yeah, cool, yeah, definitely, I'll fucking do it. <laughs> and um, and well, I guess I'll just read read what you your your account of it. <laughs> We decided to have a sort of undercover ECRG meeting at a public event. I was already taking part in a reading organized by Nate, and what I would constitute, and what and I what I read would constitute that next month's text, secretly dedicated to the group, most of whom would be in attendance. I was reading with a hot young fiction writer who had just published a story in a fancy literary magazine and was getting a lot of buzz, and a writer from Mexico City who was nervous because he'd never read in English in public before and drank Jameson's from a shiny elegant flask which flashed in the jury-rigged work lights whenever he tipped it back. Was that a slight? Did, did Ben George make you... I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of a uh, hot young fiction writer. Well, it was the... Because later, the reason... <laughs> The reason that I included, because it was so funny later when after the reading, I was like, oh, I just read that thing about um, about you, the, the Paris Review, you know, like, hot young writer to, to look out for. And you were just like, I'm not even that young. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and you were just kind of, and you were being really kind of self-deprecating about it, which I tried oh, to do good. later in the chapter. You did? But, yeah. I guess it was kind of a, no, it wasn't a, a dig. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... Because that's the way that the the evening kind of was balanced up. There was like Yuri, like we all have our roles, right? Right. Like your role was like hot young fiction writer just got published in the Paris Review, coming down and like headlining. And Yuri was like nervous Mexican writer who had never written read in public before. He was like a huge. Oh, now he's like enormous. Yeah. Yuri Herrera. He's, he's like, incredible. Yeah. Um, well, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. But okay. I. I <laughs> so the, the other story that comes after that is that uh, so my that was all an elaborate prank by my sister who also didn't like what I was writing. Um, I had written a story called Punching Jackie. My sister's name is Jackie. And uh, so she had for months planned this, this show. She's an artist so she was like, come on down, do this reading and I, by the way, I'm going to have an art show opening that weekend. Don't even worry about it. But, you know, it'll be cool. It'll be like a, a summer weekend. And so I did the reading and she convinced me to read Punching Jackie. And then, um, the next night was the opening of her show, which was called Punching Matt Back. <laughs> and and you didn't a, know that that was... I had no idea. Yeah. I was just coming down on like my high, like, yeah, I'm a hot shot, yeah. See? Hot yeah, shot. Hot shot. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, she really schooled me uh, with that. Mm -hmm. but, but that sort of goes back to like writing things that maybe your family's uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of what, where do you, how do you navigate that? Um, and it's really hard, and, and uh, you know, I, w I was wondering if there's anything other than, you know, maybe your father's passing that, that sort of gave you the permission to tackle some of these really difficult subjects, these really personal subjects and family-related subjects. Well, I think I, I gave the book to all of my siblings to read, and everybody said, even though they were a little uncomfortable with some of the more, like, uh, like intimate stuff concerning my younger sisters who died. Um, everyone, you know, said that they were cool with it, and then later some of them took it back and said they weren't actually cool with some of it after they had already said that they were. Like that sort of thing right. happened. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, honestly, for me, like the main permission was that my mom was fine with it, and um, and she read it, and she was. Um, she was extremely, extremely supportive, even though it was really, really difficult for her because there was a lot of stuff that she didn't know that was in the book that was kind of 
a revelation to her, right. um, which she found, which was it was hard for her, but we had a lot of discussions um, throughout the, you know, throughout the two years that I was working on it about it, and so I think that was kind of the main point of permission because she felt so um, isolated. Uh, during the time when you know she she was a religion teacher and um, and she had two two her two youngest kids you know committed suicide and she felt like that she had kind of lost her moral authority to teach she quit teaching which she loved and she was an amazing teacher and she felt so isolated by the experience and I think through talking through things in the book with her and her reading the book and the kind of connections um, that other people um, are feeling with the book. For her, it seemed like a relief because there was this this kind of silence around it was broken, you know. Right. So that was for me. That was kind of the biggest permission. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense too that, I mean, certainly my sister was, um, uh, you know, totally fine with it when I first wrote the story, mm -hmm. and then when it got published, was less fine with it. Yeah, that's when people, there was some pushback the closer it got to publication. Yeah, yeah. that's when it seems to happen. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah we can take some questions. Um, there was so much more. There's so much more that it, it, this is a really, truly, it's a special book. Um, and I found it really tremendously touching and well done and funny and great. So um, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks oh. for taking the time. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. But uh, we're going to open it up. Does anyone have some questions in the audience that you have for for Anne or for me? But mostly Anne. <laughs> Just now I'm beginning to see a body of literature emerge about family members who remain after suicide. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't even know enough about it to really get a feel for where that work can go. Mm -hmm. But Um, project Object, it's an online, um, I'll start with the easy question first. It's, a, it's an online project that uh, Rob Walker, and I can't remember who writes it for the New York Times and another um, person do where they, they'll have a specific type of object, like a, like a fetish or something like that, um, and just have a writer write like uh, 500 words about it or something like that, and it's all posted online. And there's a wide array of writers who have done it, and, and I did one for that. Did um, they do that for charity? Did they did they yeah, yeah, auction they, them off or something? Well, they donated the money. Um, uh, donated there's like merch, and um, I didn't take an honorarium. I donated my honorarium to the, the ACLU, and so it's to raise money for the ACLU and other places. I find that interesting because so much of in your work fiction examines the gothic reson resonance of objects or even furniture mm -hmm. and what emotions objects can portend in a room and how objects are written about as having a real point of view in contemporary literature. I yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So tell us about going into something that people have never written about. 
Well, I mean, honestly, I was telling you this earlier that I didn't, the, the first version of this book was very, very different. It, it didn't have a lot of the personal stuff in it. It didn't, I didn't talk that much about my sisters at all. I think still that uh, that taboo that my dad had put down was still kind of clinging to me a little bit, and I still was very, very reluctant um, to do that. And, um, and my editor read it, and he's like, you're just totally dancing around because I didn't. I never wanted to write memoir ever. I would do a lot of like, I don't know more. I don't know. I hate the word like literary journalism or whatever or you know personal essays and everything. But I never wanted to do memoir ever. And then the more he kept pushing on, he's like, well, what about here and what about here? It's like you really need to to do this. And I was like, damn it. It's like all right. And I just remember I just I just kind of like gave gave into it. I was like, okay, you want me to, to do this? It's like, and it, I almost took it as a challenge, and I was like, oh, I'll freaking do it. And then, like, that's why I remember writing that scene in the belly of the whale where I go to my, when we went to um, my sister's house after she had, had done it. We had to go back. We broke into the house to retrieve some videotapes because we thought that they were some things, like some sex tapes or something. And so we, like, broke in. And it was just this kind of, like, de detailed thing of, like, what we saw when we went in there. And, and I just remember this feeling of, like, going deeper, deeper into it. It's like, oh, okay, you, you know, you want me to explore this? Like, I'll explore it. Like, this is, you know, this is what we found. This is what we felt. This is what we saw. And, uh, and then I realized, like, oh, it's like, that's kind of where I needed to go. What I needed to do was just, like, examine the memory of it as best I could, you know, and I think it did have, I mean, I hate, it's being billed as like healing memoir and stuff like that, which makes me feel uncomfortable because like, I don't feel like a healed person, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh -huh. um, but I certainly did get, uh, get through this experience. I understood it so much more by writing about it. And um, so I don't even know that... I don't know what what the to get back to the question again about what. You know, I appreciate the um, <laughs> and I want to thank you for sticking with the the context of the book because so often you get into these things and it's just like how do you do the fun art? It's worthless, and this was really a good discussion. So I want to thank you for moderating that because most people don't have any clue what's interesting up there, and you really did dive in well. But why I ask the question is that a friend of mine wrote one of the most brilliant, melancholy people I know how about depression. He just wrote about it. And then he wrote at the end, but I've never had the desire to kill myself. I've always been entertained by my thoughts. And I realized it's so weird that depression and suicide could be detached like that. And I started to think, maybe not all depression leads to suicide. And what is suicide? And I just think it's a really worthy discussion to have right now. Just mm -hmm bringing it out in the open so because there, I think there are so many assumptions about suicide people have mm. and about the survivors you know that um, they need to be talked about mm -hmm. you know? and I think we're going to get some place with it talking about it yeah I mean I certainly hope so I mean suicide is something that people have been thinking about on abstract level for thousands of years that's you know kind of been the like the major kind of philosophical question is whether or not to to kill yourself. Like, if you have the option, and we're all born with the knowledge of our own deaths, and we have to kind of carry, we're expected to carry on anyway, like, why not just, like, um, kind of take agency and just and just do it? But, of course, like most of the people we know who've done it, and some of us, unfortunately, know a lot of people who've done it, um, there's never, there's not a lot of consistency from story to story. There's a lot of mystery. Um, and it never seems to be some kind of philosophical act. 
it always comes out of a place of like loss of control and confusion and you know what I mean um, to talk about the detachment though there wasn't there did, did we bring up the, um, the smiley face oh yeah the smiley faces on the on the suicide notes yeah yeah but that's like a thing I mean that is one of the things that I that I found like in talking to other people I mean that, that's the reason why I think it's it is important to talk about these kinds of things because you can sometimes you do see commonalities like that's actually a thing like um, one of my sisters did put like smiley faces like she actually had she had told herself the story that she would believe that like her son would be better off without her that we would all be better off without her and everything and um, had like put like smiley faces on all these notes and I was like what and then I was talking with the woman later who told me that you know and her husband had committed suicide and she was husband very successful banker just out of nowhere did it. I guess he had some deal or something that went wrong. He did not deal with it. And he put smiley faces on his suicide notes. And so there was the, yeah, that sense of detachment that allows you to actually do that thing to like lay down in front of the train or, you know, like jump off the bridge. Like there has to be, mm -hmm. uh, there has to be kind of a sense of detachment from your yourself and your pain too, you know? I mean, I guess, I don't know. Like I said, this is so much is speculation. <clears throat> and what if that de uh, dematerialization doesn't come from depression? That's what's the, uh -huh. that's what's running in my ears. Is that yeah, you have to be, you have to detach from the material mm -hmm. plane. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing a happy face, maybe you're not depressed. Yeah. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, you had also. Um, with your other sister, maybe with mm -hmm. Susan, or um, you were, she was suspiciously happy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah, because you always get the feeling that she was kind of hiding something. Right. That, when yeah. someone's always like really jolly. Yeah, and you know that there's like stuff going on in their lives, but they're still like they have that mask. Yeah. 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 That, that you have that impenetrable mask that you can't get to. Yeah. Well, I have all that doubt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> healthy, healthy. Uh, Skeptic. Uh, anybody else? Questions? Yes. Uh, where do you perform the bulk of your writing, like in the physical sense, and where did you come to the conclusion that that's the best place to do your art? Oh, um, I'm so lucky. I have this uh, this studio down in. Um, it's in another parish. It's only about five minutes from my house, but it's great because it's in this very cheap area. It's called uh, Saint Bernard Parish, and it's on top of a. Uh, it's above, a, it's in a strip mall, and it's above a discount liquor store. And I have to cross the parish line, even though it's really, really close to my house, I have to cross the parish line, I have to go over the industrial canal, I have to go over this old, like, rusty drawbridge, you know what I'm talking about, on St. Claude, when you go all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a totally different neighborhood, it's a totally different place, and it's a totally different space. And so I think, because of what we're talking about, like, you've got a crowded life, a crowded domestic life. Um, I can kind of enter this space where the only thing I do in that space is write. And so since I have such little time to do it, I have to have a place where I just go in, sit down, write for a couple hours, and then leave. Like that's the only thing that happens in that space. Do you have Wi-Fi in that space? Nope, no Wi-Fi. <laughs> no wi smart. Yeah, and I leave my phone in the car under the seat. I have to hide it from myself. Uh-huh. Um, and then just go up and like write for a few hours and then leave. But it's, it, I mean, for me, it, d it depends on, I mean, some people can like sit at their kitchen table with all kinds of stuff going on and write brilliant stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I need to have that detachment and a dedicated space. Me too. And I also have to, you have to like descend down into it, sort of yeah. what we were saying. You have to, I need quiet time. And like, it was weird, like with, with my ex, it was, she'd like be sleeping and I would be annoyed that she was in the space. Like while I was trying to work, 
hey, you got to get up. You got to get the fuck out of here. You know, I hear you breathing over there. Um, it's distracting. So I don't know. Why do you guys breathe up? Yeah, right. <laughs> Anybody else? Questions? Yes. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, someone else asked me. I think he'd be. Um, I think first he'd be really, really pissed because he was a patriarch, authoritarian kind of. Uh, I mean, he had, there were eight of us, and so he had to lay down the law. Like that was just a way of keeping some kind of semblance of order. And so I think he would be um, kind of pissed that I that I disobeyed him. Um, I think in the end he'd be, I think, proud that it came out. I mean, it's this kind of weird thing that the the only thing that made this book possible was him dying, which is kind of a sucky way to get a book out into the world. You know what I mean? Um, but right before he died, uh, I'd had like just like I had like these three magazine pieces come out in three different magazines, and I brought him to his hospital. And he was so proud. He was like showing the nurses and everything. And, uh, and he was like, God, he's like, you're such a good writer. He said, you should be like much better known than, than you are. And so that's the other kind of irony is that that was like one of, one of the last conversations I had with him was him being really proud of my writing and where I had taken it. And so I think he would probably, like most things, have a pretty complicated reaction to it. Yes. Yep. Anybody else? Yeah. I was just going to ask, is the existential crisis reading group still operating, and do you feel like other members of it have experienced, I don't know, changes or any kind of awakenings because of it? Um, it's a good question. I think... I think the fact that uh, we still have this core group that's so like, passionately attached to it. So yes, we are still meeting. We're like in our fifth year of doing it, and some people move away or you know, um, or quit in a huff. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So we have this a passionate core group who like really depend on it, and so I think that uh, that kind of dependence and the. The idea of really wanting to keep it going, I think that that maybe um, shows that there. I don't know if there's any kind of um, like revelations, but I know like we've developed almost this like secret thing. Like when we talk about the tragic and trivial plane, like we all know what each other's talking about, you know, because we've all discussed this stuff together. Um, and so it, when it comes up in conversations, uh, like you know that that it's sticking in people's lives in in positive ways, you know, hopefully. Who are the, who are the um, non-fiction literary writers that you, you, know, you know, just in terms of craft? Uh-huh. I think in terms of craft, I just I finally just read um, Mary Carr's Lit, and I just wanted to, like, rewrite the whole book. I was like, oh, Jesus. Like, right when my book came out, I was like, man. But I guess it was good that I didn't read it while I was writing it, because I was just like, damn it. Because um, she's really amazing in terms of the memoir and stuff. It's almost, like, too good. When you read something, you're like, "Come on, let it up!" Or like, mm -hmm. does every sentence have to be like over the top fantastic? Um, but so Mary Carr and um, and that Helen McDonald, that H is for Hawk book, that was another book that was just kind of bowled over bring that up, yeah. by the virtuosity of that book, and it was almost like too much. I was like, "Come on, uh -huh. really?" Um, and yeah, but other nonfiction writers like John Sullivan, you probably know him from from Wil do, Wilmington, yeah. yeah. J.J. Sullivan, he's yeah. great. He was so, just out here, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. Oh. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And big thanks to thanks, Skylight man. for yeah. hosting. Uh, you should buy these books, her book. and. Uh... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.